it's, it's, it's the last day of a conference. We've got to have at least a little bit of, of, of fun as we talk about a very serious topic. And uh, for those who've heard me speak before know I liked uh, starting with a story, so I'm going to do the same today. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Missouri, and uh, a lot of the lessons I've learned in life were stories that my father told me. So, and the stories always have a message or meaning to them, so this story does indeed have a meaning for what I'm going to talk about today. And the setting of this is our small rural town, 294 people in this town. And uh, in this town, we had a bank and a gas station, grocery store. Uh, everyone around was a farmer. My dad was a farmer. And, and he told a story about how if you ever wanted legal advice, you typically had to go to the county seat. And uh, so one year, a young attorney thought, wouldn't it be great if I maybe started a law practice in this town, I'd have kind of a, a monopoly on it because there's no other lawyers in town and most farmers really didn't like driving to the county seat. So in typical fashion, when this happened in these rural communities, on top of the bank, there usually was some offices and so he leased some space on top of the, of the bank in, in, in Blackburn, Missouri. And uh, first day there, he was you know getting his stuff kind of set up, uh, he, you know, putting up his law degrees and, and different kind of awards that he, that he had won, kind of getting the office straight. And much to his surprise, all of a sudden, he heard the door ring. And a lot of you in these small towns may remember that, uh, kind of let you know that someone came in, they had like a little bell by the door. And so he heard the little bell chime. So he thought, oh my God, I got to try to impress this guy. So he gets behind his desk, he pulls up his phone and he starts talking a mile a minute about how busy he is. And, and, uh, he's, and, and then he, all of a sudden, he puts it down. He says to the guy that just walked in, if you wait just a second, I'll be right with you. As you can tell, I'm really, really busy. And the guy said, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm from the phone company. I'm here to hook up your phone. <laughs> so, so my dad told me that story because he said, there are those that try to look good and those that can deliver the goods. And over the last couple of days, we've talked a lot about the looking good from a marketing or internet perspective. And those of us that are sitting in this room know how to deliver the goods. And my talk today is really going to be about, we need to be both. We need to look good. But more importantly, we need to deliver the goods. And so I want to just give you a little context of this QAI, Quality Assurance Initiative and kind of how that came ab about. Um, it was kind of fun yesterday to hear Bobby Ferguson. Are you here, Bobby? By the way, when, when you talk about being old, I, I, I got to tell you, he's up here yesterday. Did any of you hear him talk about being old? And I'm like going to myself, what does that make me, ancient? And I don't know what that makes you, Ray. I, I don't even know. But you're still breathing, so it's all good. <laughs> so, but, but, but hearing that, uh, but, but I am ancient, and I've been at this for 35 years, and, and, and I had the good pleasure, as you heard from both John and me mention, starting my career at, at, at Hazelden with, with legends. Dan Anderson, Gordy Grimm, Harry Swift, people that defined and developed the Minnesota model, the field. And as a kid, I didn't really grasp the importance of it at the time, but... but because I got to work with them, I met legends in our field, the Nelson Bradleys, the Dr. James West, the Harold Hughes, the LeClaire Bissells, people that made this a, a, a field. 
And as I was thinking about two and a half, three years ago, I'm in the last lap of my career. And I remember what it was like in the early 80s. And what a good field it was, what good work we were doing. And I kind of looked at the field and I said, isn't part of life to leave it a little bit better than the way you started? Right now, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell people what I do for a living. What a sad place to be. So I called up my good friend Mark Mishek at, at Hazelden, and we talk relatively regularly, and I said, this is so important, I want to fly out to see you. And we talked about the field. He had the same impressions and feelings that I did. And we said, what are we going to do about it? And at the time, NATAP was just getting a new executive director, a new CEO. We didn't know a whole lot about this character, Marv Ventrell. We had heard about this guy uh, talking about ethics, Bobby Ferguson, you know, talking about ethics. And, and, and both Mark and I said, I wonder if NATAP really has the horsepower to make an impact. We weren't so sure. We weren't so sure. So we said, let's call up some people who have been around this a long time and have a meeting. And so we got a couple of people together. We said, you know, let's, let's be respectful of NATAP. Let's see if NATAP is ready to step up. And I really want to give a, a, a real shout out to Art Vanderveer and Carl Kester. Carl was the, uh, uh, the chairman of NATAP at the time. Uh, Art Vanderveer was head of the uh, public uh, policy, the ethics committee. And so we said, let's get together. We invited a few other people, uh, uh, Gary Fisher, uh, Jay, Jay Crossan, and we got together and we started talking about what we should, we should do. And we started this quality assurance initiative and I said, let's do it with, with NATAP. And as you heard over the last two days, uh, really with Marv's leadership and the, and the leadership of uh, the Ethics Committee, Quality Assurance, which now also includes, I'm really delighted, Kathy Palms now part of this, Ed Deals part of this. Uh, Phil, uh, Phil Leeton from Rosecrans was part of that initial meeting, and we said, we're going to do something, and by God, they've done something. So my hat's off to you, Marv, Carl, uh, Art, great job, and we're going to continue moving forward. So educational goal, the only thing you're really going to focus on here, by the way, I'm going to show you a lot of slides, and I'm going to try to, do, to put uh, seven gallons of water in a five-gallon bucket. So everything you see up here on the, on the slides, I'm not going to read to you. Uh, I'm going to assume most of you can read. I'm going to talk about some of the things that are up there. I'm going to highlight a few things. And the main thing I wanna, that I'm going to emphasize over the next 50 minutes is the bottom word you see there, healthcare. We've got to look, act, be like healthcare. You're going you're to get tired of hearing me say that over the next 50 minutes. So I want to talk a little bit about, about how, we, how we got here. And initially, Marvin and I talked about maybe doing a his, history. Uh, a couple years ago, I did a, 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 about an hour-long talk about the history of the field at moments that changed. Any of you there two, two years ago? So, uh, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I think it is important to get an idea of where we came from. And on the opening night, Marv Ventrell talked about slaying the dragon. How many of you read the slaying, the slaying the Dragon? If you haven't, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your staff, you owe it to your patients, and you really owe it to the field to know about how we got here. So please read it. Now, I'll give you an option. Uh, it's about, 
good God, it's like this thick, six, seven, I don't know. It, it, it took me so long to read it. I, I probably did a third of my career just reading a bloody thing. It's a long book. It's really well done. But I'll give you a, a, an out. On the Karen website, there is, you can do it in an hour if you want to go hear me talk about it uh, at the moments of change uh, two years ago, if it's fall of 2016. So if you want to just do it in an hour instead of reading a 600-page book, uh, go and look at, it, look at it there. And a theme of the story, a theme of the story, and when you read this, is the two C's that I talked about, Marv talked about them on Sunday night as well, is cooperate and collaborate. When our field cooperates and collaborates, we do well. We raise the bar. We do better for our patients. We do better for our field. Competition, by the way, is good. Good competition, fair competition, because it does also raise the bar. Makes us more innovative. Makes us improve our facilities. Makes us provide competitive salaries for our staff. Provides opportunities for career growth. So good competition is still, is still important. But through it all, we have to cooperate and collaborate. I want to share with you, what does the public see in us? And, uh, uh, you know, and again, we talked about the, you know, the John Oliver thing on, on Sunday, which I'm sure a lot of people uh, saw. We've talked about it a lot. I think every presentation I went to yesterday mentioned to it. But I want you to kind of look at some of these areas of what the public sees in us. And the thing that I've kind of found interesting is when I talk to my friends outside of this field, outside of recovery, they really don't pay a whole lot of attention to what we do until it's a crisis. And so they're kind of flying around here and the things they see are these, you know, various kind of news reports and they see things about ethics and stuff. I want to just highlight really a couple of things on here. One, they see this sort of debate going on in the media between modalities. I mean, our local paper is talking constantly about how treatment in Pennsylvania is so terrible because they don't use medication-assisted treatment appropriately. Now, if you're an average person reading this, what's your view of treatment in Pennsylvania? Probably not very good. Probably not very scientific. You don't read all the details. I mean, these articles are long. Think about even the stuff you read in the newspaper. You probably don't read all this stuff if it isn't pertinent to you. So you glance through this stuff, walk away is, these guys don't know what they're doing. There's also articles. Uh, if you saw the, the John Oliver thing, they talk about uh, you know, Tom McClellan's in there and, and talks about how as a, an expert in the field, he didn't know where to go for his own son. Uh, Tom McClellan's a good friend. And, and some of his quotes and comments to the media just really does our field a lot of disservice. Uh, the one he said a couple years ago when he talked about staff was how, you know, anybody with a pair of sunglasses and a GED and a little bit of recovery can be a counselor. What a disservice to our field. And I talked to Tom about that, and he says, well, they interview me for a long time, and I, this gets taken out of context, which I'll give him the doubt because he's a good guy, and I know he cares about what we do. But when you see and hear some of those things, we have to all be very careful about what we say to the, to the media. But at the end of the day, what does the public really see about us? It's all about money. Three major reasons that 90% of the people who suffer from substance use treatment disorder this year in our country will not get treatment. Number one is still stigma and denial. Number two is funding. And number three is they don't think it'll work. They don't think it'll work. So we've got to do something about that. 
This was a real sad commentary just last fall. And you don't have to read this, but notice who it was full page ad in the New York Times. Anyone remember this last, last fall? Christopher Smithers, son of Brinkley Smithers, one of our pioneers, founding fathers of recovery in the United States. His son saying, you know what? The treatment field has contributed to the opioid problem in the United States. And he felt so strongly about it, he paid for a full page ad in the New York Times. I don't know what that costs, but that's a pretty passionate uh, feeling if you're willing, willing to do that. So here we are. And for those of us that have been at this a long time, you know, it feels a lot like the 1980s. However, remember when we were kids, you know, same as the, you know, what's the second first? Uh, same as the first, a whole lot louder and a whole lot worse. Um, this is a lot worse for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a lot bigger. Number two, it has much more public notice to it. But there's some good news this time. The good news this time is NATAP is doing something about it. And that's what we want to talk about, doing something about it. In fact, it was so bad in the late, eight, late 1980s that by the mid-1990s, and I know many of you are in this room because it was, we were the same people that were in the room in the mid-90s, a NATAP conference in the mid-90s had about two dozen people. And it's kind of neat that probably a good dozen of you are still here today. It was so bad, I remember, and I, and I should have probably checked on his name, uh, but in 1995 at a NATAP conference, it was probably about seven or eight years after the two books. Remember the book Rehab, which kind of had all the treatment centers listed, and then there was a book called The 100 Best Tr Treatment Centers in the Country? Our director, one of Marv Ventrell's predecessors, said, the field is so bad, I'm going to write a book called the, the 100 Last Treatment Centers in the United States. What a commentary about where we were. So the glass may be half empty because a whole lot louder and a whole lot worse, but the glass is half full. We've got an association this time that's able to do something about it. So I mentioned health care. We're going to talk a lot about health care because if you look at how we have promoted health, how we've promoted substance use treatment over the last 15 years, it does feel more like a timeshare or a vacation than health care. And we need to understand a couple of pieces, legal and ethics, words that get thrown around a lot. By the way, legal's real simple. It's what the law says. There are lawyers, there are judges, there's penalties if you violate the law. Ethics is what's the right thing to do. And here's the tricky part. Who gets to decide What's the right thing to do? So we want to talk about the importance of, of standards and where they, where they come from. I want to talk, say just a couple things about the law first. Uh, and I'm going to start at the bottom of this and kind of work my way up. And I've heard a couple of people talk about this, but this made it real simple for me. And I'm not going to talk about what I would call, when you get to the top, kind of the willful disregard for law. You know, there's a whole other class above that called the pathological ones. And so I'm talking about these three apply to us and people like us when it comes to the law. And I'm going to use uh, driving as a, as a great example of this. Uh, most of us good people, if we go to, and we think of the speed limit, what are the reasons that we might speed? I mean, oftentimes I know I'm driving along and I didn't see a speed limit sign. So I'm going faster than the speed limit because I never saw it, ignorance. 
There's times when I've sat standstill traffic for bloody half an hour and the speed limit's 55 and I say, you know what, I should be able to drive 60 or 70 at least for a little while to kind of make up for having a standard. So the end kind of justifies the means. And there's other times when I might just say, you know what, the likelihood of getting caught is so slim. Or if I do get caught, the penalty is so mediocre compared to, you know what, it's okay. And I would contend that many of us doing good work as it relates to the law have probably fallen into some of those categories, probably mostly in the first one. And I want to give you some examples of that. Until we really started looking at this ethical dilemma, I had no idea, and I don't know about you, but I, I'm not a lawyer, so I had no idea that there were all these laws out there that pertain to healthcare marketing and billing. By the way, uh, we actually, for your convenience, have an overview of every one of these. And, and at the bottom there, if you want to go to karen.org slash natap2018, you can actually get an overview of this. I would suggest to you that you do not need to know all these laws. But let me also say this. Somebody in your organization does. When we started looking at this, we said we got to get our whole, own house in order. We hired a compliance officer, and we said, help us understand the laws. And if we are out of bounds anywhere, let's get right. Ignorance is not a defense. We need to know the law. So if we're going to be out there talking about ethics, let's get our own house in the order, get a compliance officer, make sure that you're following the law. Well, here's the tricky one, ethics. So when I started down this, I interviewed a lot of people, talked about ethics. And I found out that everybody I talked to, here's the good news, everybody I talked to is ethical. <laughs> However, they were ready to point the fingers at the last three people I just talked to and tell me they're not ethical and they were ready to take their inventory on why they weren't ethical. So kind of my definition of ethics began Whatever I do is ethical, whatever you don't isn't. And as you heard even Marv mention this morning, some of the biggest ethical violators are even having conferences on ethics. So just because you talk about ethics doesn't make you ethical. What you do makes you ethical. So we need to have some standards. So who gets to determine? I'll tell you one thing. You don't get to determine it. You don't get to determine it. So somebody has to do it. And this is the role of associations. Here's a couple of examples. NADAC has been terrific at this in determining what's ethical behavior for a counselor. All kinds of things, black and white. The second one here, just in some examples, the Institute for Supply Management, you know, purchasing, what's ethical, what isn't. So in our field, who is going to do this? And we have a lot of problems related to this. So with no one determining the standards, anything can go enter the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, which should be and is now the place that is determining what those standards are. And we've got a history of doing the right thing. Probably one of the greatest contributions I think that NATAP did was re really working with the American Society of Addiction Medicine and developing the placement criteria. If you're new, you may not even know we did that. I don't think we get nearly enough credit for doing that, do we, Ed? Where are you, Ed? Look at that, call him out and he's not even here. <laughs> but that is something that we've done in the, in the past. And so currently working on a number of, of different 
initiatives that are very important as it, as it relates to standards. So I want to take kind of a deeper dive into what exactly uh, the National Association is doing for us. And, and yesterday, uh, there were a number of presentations that highlighted these, and you should really make sure you understand them. One of the great ones is able to direct people. <laughs> direct, direct people to f find out how you select a, a treatment program. The outcomes pilot, uh, Carl moderated a, a session yesterday that we all need to be involved with, with outcomes. And now probably the most important is really the whole QAI in initiative. And the beauty of this, by the way, on page 66 of your uh, program, it outlines all of these. And the beauty of what we're doing here for the first time is providing real definitive examples of what is legal or what is ethical and what isn't. Was, there actually was, in 2012, a first shot at putting together what ethical standards are, but it was very vague. And the beauty of what we're now doing is that it real clearly outlines activities because there was a wide level of, of interpretation of patient brokering or predatory practices. It lays them out there now in black and white. And some of the sessions, uh, Jay yesterday, your session, I thought did a great job at, at going through these kind of point by point about things you cannot do. So it's really trying for the first time to have those very clear uh, standards on what is appropriate. And the beautiful thing about what NATAP is also doing for the first time is not just saying this, we're also monitoring it, policing it, and providing a level of activity should you be in violation. I mentioned healthcare at the beginning. So we want to talk about how do we start acting like healthcare? How do we start acting uh, like this is a chronic disease that we talk about? Wilson Compton, who received uh, one of the awards on um, Sunday night, uh, probably about a year and a half ago, did a presentation with him, uh, Dr. Paul Early, and also Bob Foreman from Alkermes uh, to a bunch of congressional aides. And, and Wilson did a great job at, at helping me understand this. He said, we're a lot like cancer was in the 1960s. Level of stigma. People didn't want to talk about it. You know, your grandmother has cancer. You know, a little bit like, like it was today. Said the level of getting people help, there were sort of three different paths you could follow. You know, there was surgery. There was chemo, there was radiation. If you went to a physician that happened to do surgery, guess what? That's what you got. Or if you went to radiation, that's what you got. Said now, fast forward, you now go to and get a good assessment, you get a good evaluation, and guess what? You go to the place that provides you the best likelihood to put this disease in remission. And guess what? You might actually use all three. Said that's where we need to eventually get to with addiction. Today, if you go to a methadone maintenance clinic, guess what you're going to get? Methadone. If you go to an abstinence-based only program, guess what? That's what you're going to get. So we need to learn how to do that. So let's take a look at how this compares to another chronic illness. Use diabetes. And, and when they did the, uh, the Mental Health Parity Act, they oftentimes used diabetes as kind of a correlation disease. How do, we, how do you compare it? So let's talk, and, and we're at a disadvantage throughout this whole process. Addiction is at a real disadvantage. First and foremost is there really isn't a good biological medical test 
to give you. We have the questionnaires, which are somewhat subjective, based on oftentimes the honesty, integrity of the person suffering from substance abuse disorder, and sometimes they tend to lie. Sometimes they tend to minimize. Uh, so we're up against it from the beginning, and it only gets worse. The physician, if you are talking with a physician, oftentimes they're untrained. Oftentimes they don't even want to deal with this. They just want to totally ignore it and get it away. Sometimes they make it even worse by prescribing you a medication that exacerbates your substance use disorder. So the family gets frustrated. We've got to go get our own information. And I want you to go sometimes, you know, we check, do a lot of uh, checking on the, uh, you know, Googling around our field. Try diabetes and look at what you get. You get medically qualified places to go and get information. It's about medicine. It's about healthcare. It's not about marketing. So our folks who are looking for help are up at a real disadvantage. Where you go for treatment, again, if it's cancer or diabetes, assessment and evaluation to get you to the best care. With us, it's gonna be hit or miss, oftentimes based on finances and how well the marketing was done. Once you begin the recovery process with another disease, the physician, your primary care physician, integrally involved, with us, may not even talk to your physician about it. Insurance, the biggest gap of all, and I've got the next slide is gonna show a little bit about the insurance gap. With anything else, insurance probably paid for almost all of it. With us, maybe, maybe not. And then if you relapse, any other illness, you go get more treatment. For our illness, the person is a failure or the treatment is a failure. I want to just give you a, a kind of from the insurance perspective, just something. Oh, from November of last year through April of this year, my, my son ended up having a, a, a significant physical problem that just kind of came out of nowhere. Went through five surgeries. I saw uh, several of the bills they showed me, but my estimation now is it's probably somewhere between $250,000 and $500,000 of, of surgeries that he has had in, in medical care. He's had to have DNA tests, CAT, stand, CAT scans, MRI. He's had to go and talk to Duke, Penn Medicine, Jefferson in Philadelphia. And the beauty of this is there was no marketing. The doctors at Jefferson suggested he go to Penn Medicine the head of vascular surgery at Penn Medicine said, I'd really like for you to go and talk to Duke. His bills for this was the set, in two different years, $7,500 out-of-pocket copay last year, $7,500 out-of-pocket copay this year. What a way, what great health care, what a great thing we have in America for almost everything other than substance use disorder. And I was thinking about as a parent with the folks that we have to take care of, wouldn't it be great to not have marketing and websites? Now, again, my son did a ton of study about his illness and looked at a lot of things and looked at the different medicines and the different procedures. He educated himself so that he could have good, meaningful conversations with his physicians. But that's how it should be with ours. The insurance gap. A couple of things I just want to kind of point out on here. First of all, insurance pays for all other healthcare, about 
government pays about 50%, out-of-pocket's about 10%. For substance use disorder, government pays about 70%, out-of-pocket's about 20%, insurance is only 10%. But I want to just really show you the top, the substance use, the out-of-pocket, has increased since 2012 80%. Total spending, 50%. Look at overall health care. Kind of creeping along at what they say, about 2 to 3% increase a year. And the big problem of the out-of-pocket is because most payors do not look at this as a chronic illness. They look at it as an acute episode. We will pay for residential, or we will pay for IOP. But when it comes to the sober living, sober coaching, any kind of monitoring that is required to manage chronic illness, it's not there, which is why the out-of-pocket has gone up so much. So how do we transition to, to chronic care model? And a lot of it has to do with us in this room. So, I want, so I'm going to have you sort of challenge yourself to think about this. We can't control what society thinks. We can't control what the government does. We can't control what insurance pays. We can't control what the media writes about us. So it's like the serenity prayer. We can control what we do and how we act. So it's important for us to act like this is healthcare and treat this with integrity because I believe that if we do that for several years, that eventually society and government and insurance and media is going to have a different viewpoint on us. So we need to start looking at how do we provide healthcare. And again, a number of the different presentations talked about sort of the comforts of treatment. Absolutely, it's fine to promote our location or our facilities. But let's also think about the healthcare part of it. And I want to show you some slides that talk about that. And we've been kind of led to this because we're, we, actually, we actually deliver service to a little bit different population than what regular healthcare. We have to attract people to come to us. My son, with his surgeries, didn't have to be attracted to do it. He was in pain. He was losing blood flow. He had to get surgery. He, had to be, he didn't have to be convinced to do it. And because we have to convince people because of the stigma and denial of this disease, we said, let's make the place look good. And so let's look at great marketing is customer-centric. What does the customer want? And especially, what do those of us who suffer from this illness want? An easier, softer way. So we oftentimes give the customer what they want, not what the person suffering from substance use disorder needs. And we need to do that through health care. So I want to encourage you as you start looking at your website, your brochures, to take a look at how are we doing this. And here are some of the things that I think are really important. Are we talking about our academic affiliations? Are we talking about the credentials of our staff? Are we talking about our physicians? Are we talking about how long they have been there? Are we talking about any kind of research we're doing? Are we talking about outcomes that are legitimate and bona fide? And all of these things become important. You heard, uh, those of you that were here this morning talked, heard John talk about you know, things like promises. We like promises, but make sure that they're bona fide. You can stand behind it. 
Uh, again, that one of the things that if you watch the John Oliver, he talked about like the outcomes. He, you know, he jokingly said everybody said 80 percent, and since they made it up anyways, he said, why not 140 percent? Uh, you know, we have 140 percent success rate. So make sure you've got science and evidence uh, behind that. This is a complex illness, and we need to let our patients and families know about the severity of it. But we need to let them, just like with any other chronic illness, the kind of medical procedures that we're going to be doing. And I want to give kind of maybe NATAP a challenge at the bottom here. If you look at the last bullet on this page, this is the only chronic illness where any kind of, of relapse is considered unsuccessful. The whole procedure is unsuccessful. Other chronic illnesses look at, measure things like time in remission, extending length of life expectancy, quality of life. Great opportunity for NATAP to partner probably with places like the American Society of Addiction Medicine and probably NIDA and NIAAA. We need a better criteria so that families can have some reasonable expectations. And again, while we all strive for 100% recovery for the rest of our life a day at a time, we also have to look at some of the small victories that people have along the way. And I'm sure many of you have had this. Um, this last de December, I had a sponsee. And he had real, real struggles getting more than three months continuous recovery. And at Christmas time, he was in a level of kind of just, am I ever going to do, am I ever going to be able to get this? So I said, let's take a look at how long we've been trying to do this. At the time, it was about nine months. And I said, let's recall where you were nine months ago. He says, well, I was at the Spruce Pavilion, which was the mental institution in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. He was there because of a suicide attempt. And I said, so in the last nine months, how, how many times have you been to Spruce Pavilion? Zero. Okay, that's good. I uh, said, so let's also take a look at the last nine months. I said, how many times have you used over the last nine months? How many days? He said, probably, you know, we, we kind of figured it out. It was probably right in the three-week range. So I said, okay, that's about 20 days. Since you started doing this, that's 200 days. So 90% so of the time, you haven't used. That's a victory. I said, how's it going with your wife? Oh, my God, it's so much better. So much better. He has a little one-year-old son. How's that been? I've been able to be there for him. He owns a small business. I said, how's that been for you? He said, I'm having the best year of my life. So I said, we're going to eventually get this so that you're able to get more than three months at a time. But he said, don't beat yourself up. There's a lot of victories. We, as a field, we need to figure out how to do that with continuing to have that gold ring out there so that eventually can sit in a room. Because he said the embarrassing part for him was, he said, I just hate going back to meetings and constantly having to pick up a week or a day. He said, that's so embarrassing. We need to figure that out as a field. And so that's my challenge for NATAP, ASAM, NIH. How do we do a better job at being able to do that? Because that's what other diseases do. We've got to act like healthcare. So how do we get there? We get there by cooperating, collaborating around standards. And that's where I really got to salute 
what we have done as a, as a field and now having standards. And they were tough. I know Marv and Carl and Jay and all the ones that have worked diligently in putting these standards together, of going through and talking about what is brokering? What is unethical billing? That's hard work. They also knew that in doing it, you know what, there's going to be some people who disagree with us. That's the hard part about developing standards, is you're going to put a line there and determine this is inbounds, that's out of bounds. And our goal for those that are out of bounds, please get in bounds. We need you. We need you to be in bounds. And I would like to, uh, us to eventually get to the point where we don't have to talk about what we're not doing. We should not have to lead and say, by the way, we're not one of the bad actors. By the way, we're not unethical. We need this to become something that is just understood. Have you ever gone to a physician and asked him, by the way, are you ethical? I mean, when you go to, I mean, like when, when we went to Penn Medicine, we didn't say, I wonder if Penn Medicine's ethical. You just assume, you know it is. That's what we want to be in our field. We want to get away from this having to talk about the negative and rather focus on the positive. And here are the positive things that we should be talking about. These are the kind of things that they talk about in healthcare. I want to go to the fourth bullet, centers of excellence. Those of you that were at the Optum presentation yesterday you know, heard uh, Deborah Sussman talk about the fact that this is the only illness that doesn't have a centers of excellence criteria. So Optum has developed their own. As a field, we need to begin to do this. Uh, again, kind of my collaboration with uh, Mark Mishik at, at Hazel, and we've challenged our staff to take a shot at putting together a center of excellence criteria for the substance use field. And we plan on then sharing that with the National Association. We've let Penny Mills at the American Society of Addiction Medicine know this. We've talked to Nora Volkov at, at uh, NIDA and also George Koob at NIAAA. Our field needs something like this because we need to act like healthcare, because we are healthcare. We need to have those. So let's talk a little bit about NATAP. Uh, we really would love to see this whole ethical conversation another year or two down the road be in our rearview mirror so that we don't have to talk about the bad actors. Instead, we want to be looking ahead to talk about the good work that we're doing and the better work that we will do when our focus can be on care and recovery and not about cleaning up our field. The good result for that will be, obviously, for the field much better, but most importantly, the people that we serve. That's where we went ahead. And a couple of things under, you know, when you look at all of the different pieces here, and what we're addressing at the National Association. I really want to encourage everybody in your organization to make sure you understand all of the QAI initiatives. It's good for us, and this is why having a compliance officer is key to make sure your staff has been trained. You know, you can know everything about patient brokering. That's wonderful, but if your representatives out in the field don't understand, they put you and your organization at risk. You can understand everything about billing, but if the people in your back office doing it don't know, they put you 
and your organization at risk. So please, this isn't just stuff for us. We get on a plane today, we fly away. Please make this part of your organization. You do that with a compliance officer. You need to have one. You need to make sure everybody in your organization knows about it. I'm delighted. When, when one of the things that Mark Mishak and I talked about at the very beginning of this is it's great if we get, you know, and we know who, who the good guys are. It's going to be very easy. They're going to want to all do this. But you know what really makes this ultimately work, if the good guys get some benefit out of this, which we think is going to happen, but just as importantly, the bad guys have some sting. So this policing opportunity is real important to make sure that there is some level of sting. And eventually, not being a member of the National Association will have an impact. And we're going to talk in just a minute, particularly with payers, how this is going to play out going into the future. The gold seal I put on here, you know, that's kind of the whole idea of center of excellence. You heard Marv talk about it the first night. We talked about that at our first meeting. We said, not yet. You know, let's walk before we run. Let's make sure we get a basic, you know, a baseline, if you will, for compliance. Once we do that, we can start thinking about should there be specialties for teenagers or should there be specialties for the chronic relapse or, or whatever the case might be. We can take a look at that. But let's get this first part right. If we do this first part right, it's going to make that a whole lot easier. And in many ways, we're now becoming a self-regulating organization because if you don't meet our criteria, if you can't measure up to our standards, you can't be in the organization. And this is real important for us. And if you look at the bottom, addresses standards and outcomes. Transparency, we talk about what we're doing. There's going to be a trusted list. Government and insurers want a trusted list. When I've talked uh, particularly to ONDCP and parts of NIH and SAMHSA, they are excited about this. We're doing a lot of good work for them by saying, here's a great place to start. 200 facilities you can count on, rock solid. Quality people, quality care, look at this as healthcare. And if you aren't in compliance, we'll deal with it. Shatterproof, you, you, you'll hear this a couple of times. Shatterproof, uh, and you, I think Marv even mentioned on Sunday night, had just gotten a call from Shatterproof because uh, the next meeting is in place. Shatterproof, just as a, a background, started by Gary Mendel, very wealthy entrepreneur, lost his son to this, this illness and wanted to do something meaningful and, and important and kind of started it by donating uh, to his nonprofit. Shatterproof is a nonprofit, $5 million to get it started. Gained a lot of attention. Pew Charitable Trust, Kaiser, a lot of big organizations are saying, we need you to be successful at what you're doing. And his goal was to say, for the average person out there, how do they find what they're looking for? So he said, I'm going to start with the payers. And, because, and particularly with Pew Charitable Trust involved, is able to get the seven largest payers together and uh, Medicare, Medicaid uh, payers as well. They, collectively, this group he had together covers about 80% of the United States that have any kind of either government or private insurance. So we need to have some standards on what we'll, we will pay for. So they did that. The second part of it is we now need the providers to talk about what do you think is good care? Because the payers, you know, yeah, they've got medical directors and folks like that that, that that are involved, but we're the ones who deliver care. So we need to get the providers 
to see how well this lines up. And that's the meeting that you heard Marv talk about on Sunday night. That's the next piece. And this is why being a member of National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers because is important because we're going to be on that list. We're at the table. We're talking about the criteria that needs to go into this. And by the way, I just want to tell you that insurers are more interested in this than ever before in the 35 years that I've been involved in this. I, I, um, the calls that, that we received to, from insurers to talk about this and to help educate them is amazing. And they're doing their own things. Got to tell you, um, I talked to Doug Nemechek from Cigna regularly. And by the way, he's on the board of Shatterproof. I talked to Marty Rosenweig from Optum fairly often. Uh, Going to be talking to Hyung Un from Aetna. Kim Holland, who is the public affairs for all of the blues. They're actually thinking about starting their own centers of excellence kind of criteria because they're interested in quality care. They get cost offset. They understand what it's like when people don't get good treatment. They understand what it costs them down the line, but they also understand the bad treatment that's happening right now. Recently met with the president of Highmark, and I don't know if I got this statistic right, but even if it's wrong by 100%, it's still staggering. Said so they, 18 months ago, put into place a fraudulent billing practice just for substance use disorder. And in that year and a half, we're finding an average of about a million dollars a month in fraudulent billing. Now again, if I've got the number wrong by a thousand percent, but I, but I said, holy cow. They're interested in finding good treatment because A, they don't want all of this bad billing, B, they want people to get well, and C, they know that when they do get well, the cost offset down the road is enormous. So Shatterproof is one group that's doing this. There's some others. Uh, facing Addiction, Greg Williams, I know, is going to be talking this afternoon. They're involved in something similar to this. Mary Bono, a lot of you probably know her. She's putting a group together. So there's some different initiatives taking a look at the payer side of this. And the beauty of today with the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers is we're talking to all of them. We're hoping that one or more of these are successful. The key is that one is. We need to figure out which one has got the, the best path to there, but they all have some very interesting opportunities. ASAM and, and CARF, uh, Penny Mills uh, at, at ASAM is working, and their hope is this year to have a certification process so that, they, so that, very, so that we can, as providers, talk about being certified, and to some degree, this is a little bit like centers of excellence because we get certified for different levels of care. One thing she told me, which was really quite disappointing to hear, is that every treatment center, even if they don't do it, talks about using the ASAM placement criteria. You know, they know they need to do their own policing activity to make sure that that is indeed happening. So, they're looking just like we are in how do we have some sting to people who play outside of the boundaries. The legal piece, this is the law part of it, and uh, there's a, and, and nationally, um, this la in February testified, or no, I guess it was December, testified with Dave Ehrenberg. I know he'll be presenting this afternoon. Gained a he's gained a lot of national acclaim for what he's doing in Palm Beach County. And we were 
testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is taking a look at what kind of national laws can be put in place to, to deal with the bad actors in, in our field. And it's kind of a, a, one of the things that Dave talked about was the challenges as a state person if there's no national law, because like in Florida, all the folks are coming in from insurance from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York, and kind of the Northeast, and he has no jurisdiction with that. So they're looking at ways to do that. The, the federal government is looking at this very, very seriously. States are very aggressive, and there's a whole lot of other states now that have put laws, and I think Jay mentioned yesterday, Tennessee just enacted a law, and I think there's something like eight states now that have some type of marketing and billing laws that have been put in place uh, to deal with this. And one of the things I would encourage you to do, if your state is doing something, your community is doing something, get on the positive side of this by being part of those task forces. Don't assume somebody else will do it. We need to do it. The insurance industry is, as I mentioned, very interested in this, focused on it more so than, than ever before. And I would really encourage you, at the very least, look at Shatterproof. Make that an assignment when you go home. You know, Google them, look at what they're doing, stay apprised of, of what they're doing so that you're aware of when they talk about it, where they're trying to be, and, and then monitor how we do as a national association of being integrated with them. As I said, there's a couple of, of other initiatives, but Shatterproof, I think, is, is uh, the most important. We've seen this morning uh, what Google is doing with LegitScript. Again, important for you as a leader in your uh, organization and in the field to be aware of this and to weigh in. On, on this. Unfortunately, if we don't do this well, we get beat up in all these places. And you could go to any one of these and, and see more than you want to see about the really bad actors. And I said, today my talk isn't so much about the really bad actors because I think uh, eventually law will take care of that. I think supply and demand will take care of that. But it's important for us to be the shining lights. It's important for us to, sh to have the media see the good work that we're doing, to talk about the successful outcomes we, we have, how we improve our facilities, how we're part of the solution for our nation's opiate epidemic. There's wonderful opportunities here with the media. So I would encourage you, again, locally, to develop a relationship with your media outlets so that they can see the good work that, that's being done. So how do we restore trust? And this is basically a summary of, of what we should be doing. Um, the, beauty, the beauty is that, that not only is the National Association now a resource, it's a leader. And make sure that you study all of the different tools that the National Association is providing. I'm gonna say it again under the third bullet, make sure you have a compliance program at your organization. You can think you're doing good work. You can even have the philosophy that a lot of this is common sense. Well, again, one of the things my dad told me a lot of years ago, unfortunately, common sense isn't all that common. So make sure you've got people who are looking at the law and the standards that we've outlined at the National Association to make sure that your organization is in compliance. Think about it for a second, because if we just stray a little bit, the bad actors that we've talked about, we stray a little bit. Don't you think they'd love to shine the light on when we stray?
I think it's somewhat biblical about making sure we take care of our own house before we uh, look at someone else's, you know, take the, take the pillar out of our eye before we look at the speck in someone else's. So we've got to do that well. If we don't do that well, we can become a target. So make sure you do that. Uh, if you don't have one, get one. If you do have it, make sure that you're supporting that. As I mentioned, whatever you have going on locally, make sure that you get involved with that. This, the second to last bullet where it talks about promoting your green grass. Um, I talk about, uh, it's an old story about, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Well, if we only had what Hazel and Betty Ford had, well, this would be real easy. Um, well, if you're Hazel and Betty Ford, you're looking at what do we do well and how do we promote it. But if you're another treatment center, there's a lot of things you do well. And promote them as health care. Yes, you can talk about your locale. You can talk about your beautiful facilities. You can talk about the wonderful comfort amenities. I got to tell you, when I went through treatment 10 years ago, I loved being at a place that had comfortable amenities. It made the rigorous work that I had to do in here and in here a whole lot easier being in a comfortable place. So feel free to talk about that. You should. But promote your doctors. Promote your clinicians. Promote your academic affiliations. Approach promote what you do from a healthcare perspective. I'd also encourage you to do something, and probably most of you already have this. Uh, you know, we kind of looked through our whole website and we never really made a patient promise. So we've done something we call the patient bill of rights so that anybody who looks at our website, they can understand that this is what you will get at Karen. So I would encourage you to have something like that so when they come, they understand what it is they get, what it is they can expect, and what will be happening to them. Transparency is really critical. Our future probably started yesterday. Um, but I'd like to talk about, we go forward from a conference, we have an opportunity to shine a bright light on this, shine a bright light on your facility, shine a bright light on what you do from a, from a healthcare uh, perspective. And I want to thank all of you for on the last day being such an attentive, good, good audience. And I will turn it back over to Marv as we go to our, our lunch. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank, thank you for, for what you did just now. And thank you for your support of the National Association. Uh, it matters a lot. Uh, we're going to go to lunch in the pavilion. Uh, thank you, Board of Directors, for for sponsoring the lunch, and we're going to talk about the Political Action Committee and see if we can uh, move that forward a little bit more. So, and then please come back after lunch. Downstairs and then out. And the, the panel this afternoon is stellar, right? I mean, Dave Ehrenberg and Greg Williams and Phil Rutherford, uh, you got to come hear those guys. It's going to be great. Thank you.